Tonight we're in Philippians chapter 3, and we're actually going to pick it up in the middle of the chapter. The last time we were together, we left off at verse 11. But I just want to sort of remind you of the train of Paul's thought beginning from the start of chapter 3. The letter to the Philippians, as we've discussed before, is really well known for the great warmth of relationship that Paul had with the Philippians. He loved them, and they loved him. And, and he really wanted to uh, bless them, to inspire them. But we shouldn't think that this letter to the Philippians was only uh, a big celebration of the love that they had together. It was more than that. There were threats and dangers to the church at Philippi that Paul felt compelled to warn them about. And as we saw uh, last time we were together in Philippians chapter 3, the first few verses, Paul in very strong terms warned them against the influence of legalistic Jews, probably those who were Christians, but who came from a Jewish background and wanted to impose the Jewish ceremonial law upon Gentiles. Well, as Paul is discussing this problem, he points out that the problem with these people is that they have a confidence in the flesh. For example, a confidence in the ritual of circumcision to make someone righteous. And Paul pointed out that if anybody had reason to be confident in the flesh, it was he himself. And he goes on to detail all the reasons why he might be confident in the flesh, uh, his heritage, his achievements, all of these things, his zeal for the Lord. But then he said, no, I, I count them all as being nothing for the sake of Jesus Christ. And then we saw how he really reevaluated, and he said for a second time, yes, indeed, I do count them as being nothing but rubbish. And Paul rejected all of those outward things as a reason why he might have confidence in the flesh. Instead, Paul very plainly and strongly put the focus on what he gained in Jesus Christ. He left behind all of those reasons why he might have confidence in the flesh, and he left those behind so that he might gain Jesus. And then let's look at verses 10 and 11. We we studied them last time, but we'll just go over them very quickly. Paul says, sort of coming to a summit peak of the description of his experience with Jesus Christ, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul here is really reflecting the the depth and the power of his commitment to Jesus Christ and the very strong relationship that he had with him on a personal level by simply crying out, what I really want to know is not the achievements of the flesh. I don't really want to know all these things that I might accomplish, that I might have confidence in myself. Instead, what Paul says is, I want to know him. That was the simple plea of his heart. That's a plea unknown to the legalist. You see, the legalist doesn't want to know Christ. The legalist wants to know himself. The focus is always on myself. Am I doing good enough? Am I righteous enough? Am I doing enough good works? Paul says, I've forgotten about self. Now I want to know him. And then he goes on in verse 10, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed into his death or to his death, if by any means I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Well, we we studied these verses in some depth last time and just saw what a summit 
peak this is of a Paul describing his own passion, his own experience after the Lord. And I think every one of us, every one of us, to to whatever degree that we are in ourselves, godly men and godly women before the Lord, our heart beats with the same rhythm. You say, I want to know Jesus Christ. I want to know the, the power of his resurrection. I also want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. And we think about these things, and it's the passion of our heart and say, yes, Paul, we want to walk on that same mountain that you walk upon, not because Paul in himself is anything exalted, but because he's a godly leader and an example for us. But then we take a look at verse 12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I have to say, If Paul was on the summit peak before, now maybe he just jumped up and now he's floating in the atmosphere above. But I want you to notice, he does it not by boasting of his high spiritual accomplishment, right? Paul's attitude isn't, well, yes, you know, I've come to this place where the passion of my life is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And someday you low Christians may come up to my high level. No, Paul's attitude is, look at it again in verse 12, not that I have already attained. Paul's attitude wasn't that he had reached some level where now he could sort of, you know, uh, relax or kick back in his spiritual life. He said, no, even though he was writing from such a place of spirit maturity and such a place of purity that we might have expected that he would believe that he had conquered all spiritual difficulties and he saw himself at having arrived at perfection or maybe near perfection in the Christian life. Paul assures us this is not the case. There was no perfectionism in Paul. I have to say, it's a sad thing that, that, that many Christian leaders, or at least some of them, I should say, they, they, they seek to cultivate this attitude that they have already attained. You know, without saying the words, they put forth the image of this constant triumph, this constant glory, this constant success. And maybe someday you poor Christians can come up to the same level of great walk and power that I have. It's that sort of image presented all the time before the people. And they give people the idea that they have already attained or that they have already perfected. But, but Paul doesn't have that attitude at all. No, Paul's attitude is, I press on for as much as I may have achieved. And we would have to say that Paul had achieved a lot in his Christian life. I like the description of Oswald Sanders of Paul the Apostle. He described Paul as the world's most successful Christian. I don't know if that's true. How could you ever measure such a thing? But it certainly reflects to the heights that Paul had attained in his Christian life. But Paul achieved those heights by never thinking in that way, right? Do you think if you met the Apostle Paul, shook his, hand, shook his hand, and he handed you a business card, it would say, Paul of Tarsus, world's most successful Christian. Does anybody ever think it would say anything like that? No, not at all. You see, th- this is a constant idea of what real spiritual maturity is about. Real spiritual maturity carries within it the passion 
to press on deeper and deeper. And as I read these words, I have to say that it comes as sort of a conviction to my own heart, especially as I think back in my life to a time, a a season. I I can't give you exact dates. I can't give you an exact month. But I, I recall the season in my life very plainly where one day I realized that I, I sort of believe, now, you, you know, you, you, you talk in a spiritual way with yourself, right? And, and so you realize you, you use the right spiritual words. So I would never say these exact words in my own mind. I was too spiritual to say it. But I realized that this, in fact, was my thinking. My thinking was I had come up to a certain spiritual level, and now it was my job to just sort of maintain it. I realized that I had lost the passion for pressing on for a deeper and a more meaningful experience of Jesus Christ. And I have to say that that came as as quite a heavy conviction to my heart. I I realized, listen, that's not what I've been saved for. Not not to come up to some sort of level of maturity. Well, now, now I just stay there. Now I'm just kind of on cruise control. I've reached a certain altitude, and now the, 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 the plane just continues along at that altitude. No, not at all. Paul's attitude was, but I press on. And I have to say, I believe that this is where childlike faith connects with real maturity. Do, do you know what's characteristic of a child? A child wants to get bigger, don't they? A a, a two-year-old looks at the three-year-old and goes, oh, and I'm only three. And then the three-year-old looks at the five-year-old, oh, how great life is going to be when I'm five. A child wants to get bigger. And that's how it is with our childlike faith. We should say, I want to grow. I want to press on. I want to keep going for it in my Christian life. It's as if Paul put his hand to the plow. He refused to look back, but he said, I am going to press on further and further. And then notice what he pressed on for. He mentions it here in verse 12. That I may lay hold of for that which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Don't you find that wording a little bit confusing there? So let's just take it apart piece by piece and understand exactly what it is that Paul's saying because I think it's very rich. Paul is saying, I am pressing forward for the things that Jesus wants for me. Jesus has laid hold of me for a certain reason. Those things that Jesus Christ has laid hold of me for, that's what I want to lay hold on. I, I want to put my grip on the things that Jesus has put his grip on me on that behalf. Another way to say this is that his effort was put forth to do God's will and not his own. You need to understand, when Paul said that I may lay hold, in the ancient Greek language there, he used very strong language. The idea there, if you can put in your mind the image of of an American football player who wants to lay hold of somebody, and it isn't just that he wants to, you know, there's the guy carrying the ball and a defender comes along, and he doesn't just want to lay hold of him and grab onto the guy, right, and just hold him there. What does he want to do? He wants to lay hold of him and throw him down to the ground. That's exactly the kind of wording. That's exactly the force of the verb and the grammar construction that Paul is using here. I want to lay hold of it and lay hold of it down, so to speak. It's as if he wants to master this thing that is put before him, I may lay hold. You see, Paul began this verse with the idea that Jesus Christ had laid hold of him, right? That I may lay hold 
of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. You see, sometimes Christians take that idea. Jesus Christ has laid hold of you. Okay? They take that idea, and with it they become passive. Okay, great. Jesus Christ has laid hold of me. Now I can kick back. Right? He grabbed onto me. He chose me. He worked in me. He's doing a great you know, thing in my life. Praise the Lord. Now I just kick back. That wasn't Paul's attitude at all. Paul's attitude was, Jesus Christ laid hold of me. What for? Those are the things that I want to be passionate about in my life. For example, you could say that Jesus laid hold of Paul to make him a new man, right? So Paul said, oh, I want to lay hold of the new man. That's what I want in my life. I want to walk and live according to the, the, the lifestyles and the ideas of that new man. You, you could say that Jesus Christ laid hold of Paul to conform him into the image of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, oh, I want to lay hold of that, and I want to see the nature of Jesus in myself. You know, for more of this idea of what Jesus Christ laid hold of Paul for, keep your finger here in Philippians chapter 3, of course. Why don't you turn back to chapter 9 of the book of Acts. And let's take a look at verse 15, because right there is Paul's call to ministry, so to speak. And you can see exactly what God laid hold of Paul for. Acts chapter 9, look at it here, verses 15 and 16. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. You see, God laid hold of Paul to make him a witness. So what did Paul do? He said, I want to lay hold of that with all of my life. Jesus laid hold of Paul to make him an instrument in the conversion of other people. So Paul laid hold of that purpose. And look at the things that Paul spent his life for. He spent his life to be a witness. He spent his life to bring other people to Jesus Christ. These were the things that God had laid hold of him for. And you can even say, look at verse 16, that Jesus laid hold of Paul to bring him into suffering. So Paul even laid hold of that work. You know, it's amazing to sort of connect Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, with what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, where he says that I may know him, right there you saw it in verse 10, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. It's as if that call to suffering that Paul first heard when he came to Jesus Christ, uh, way back in Acts chapter 9, it was still ringing in his ears when Jesus said, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Paul said, if that's why Jesus Christ has laid hold of me, then I want to lay hold of even that difficult calling as well. So you see how Paul understood that Jesus Christ put a call on his life for something, and then Paul said, I want to pursue that with everything that I have. So now back to verse 12 of Philippians chapter 3, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself as to have apprehended. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Don't you love Paul's perspective there? 
says, I'm going to forget about the things that are behind. He's focused on one thing right there. Look at it, verse 14. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's his obsession. The prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's his focus. And he's not going to let the things which are behind distract him from it. He's pressing forward towards the prize. You know, uh, there's a very famous picture of two men. You know, I can't remember. I I think their names, Roger Bannister, the first man to break the four-minute mile. And and I want to say the other man's name was Landy, but I forget his first name. But these two runners were the first two men in the world to ever run a mile in under four minutes. Which, by the way, before that had been done, there were many people who thought it was impossible for a man to run a mile in under four minutes. Well, can you imagine the first time that these two men faced off in a race against one another? I mean, it was a world-famous thing. It was the athletic event of the year. Everybody knew the two men who had run a mile in under four minutes were going to run together in the same race. Now, I can't even remember who won the race, but I'll tell you what remote... I, I wasn't even alive when this happened. I'm just remembering it from history books and such. But I remember very vividly a picture that I saw in a history book about this race. And one of the runners is ahead. And you know what he's doing? He's turning around to see where his opponent is. The guy who was ahead and turned his head to look down the stretch, down the last part of the race, he ended up losing. Because at the moment he sort of turned his head, it slowed him down enough that the other man with a burst of speed was able to surpass him. Well, isn't that us? We're running a race. You don't run a race by looking behind. Now look, I'm not saying that there is never a value in a backward look. There is. There's occasionally a value in looking back, maybe learning from a lesson in the past, right? Maybe seeing some glorious work that God has done in the past, an Ebenezer, so to speak, in days gone by that you thank the Lord for. Yes, I'm never going to say that there's never a value in looking back, but it's like when you're driving your car, right? You've got a a mirror right there in the middle of the the windshield, right? Your rear view mirror. And it's good for you to occasionally look in it, right? You need to. A good driver, right? Every once in a while, he's going to look in the rear view mirror and just look. But you can't drive the car if you're focused on the rear view mirror, can you? That's a lot of Christians living their Christian life like that. Oh, where are you going? Oh, I'm, I'm driving towards the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. But they're crashing into everything because all they're doing is looking at the rearview mirror. Oh, well, look at the person who hurt me back there. And look at this tragedy that happened to me. And God, where were you in this place? And, and Lord, why did you allow them to do this to me? And so forth and so on. And it goes on and on and on until you just say, get your eyes off the rearview mirror. If you have to glance in it from time to time to make sure you're in the right position, go right ahead. But never, never believe you're going to make real progress by staring into the rearview mirror. Instead, Paul believed that the prize was the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, and that's what he pressed on before. You know, it's a deception for us to live in either the past or, I would say, in the future. I believe that it's it's a deception of Satan, one that he spins with with masterful quality in our life to get us to either live in the past or in the future. Oh yeah, it's going to be great someday. 
right? Yeah, someday I'll really serve the Lord. Yes, someday I'll really give it all for him. Yes, someday I'll get serious about these things. Yes, someday I'll I'll pursue the things I should be pursuing in my life. So you either live off in the future or you live off in the past. You know where Satan does not want you to live? Right now today. Right now in the present day. You know, you can say that eternity touches our world at the present. That's where eternity touches our world. Right now in the present moment. So there's a place for us to say, you know what, I'm going to forget about the past. I'm going to forget about the future in that regard too. I'm going to be concerned with where I am right now and pressing on towards the goal, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus right now. And I love how Paul words this. If you look at it again at verse 14, he says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now look carefully at that sentence again. What is the prize? Do you see what the prize is? The prize is the upward call of God. The prize is the call itself, not the benefits that come from the call or any other thing. The prize is being able to run the race at all. The prize is working with God as a partner to further the work of his kingdom. That's the prize. You know, it's as if a, a, a man is, is, is working with his father and, you know, he, he does all sorts of work and he works very hard and he, he hopes to accomplish many things. And really what the father wants him to do is to work very hard for the sake of the relationship with the father. But let's say the son is focused on other things. The son is focused on, you know, the material things he might gain or the status he might achieve or all these other things where instead God wants us to be impressed with the call itself. And it's a high calling. It's an upward call because it comes from above. It's a high calling because it's worthy of God. And because it's such a glorious call, it's worth reaching or pressing forward for it. That's why he says in verse 14, I press toward the goal. He says, reaching forward to those things which are ahead at the end of verse 13. Paul recognized that it was worth reaching forward for. There's one other thing I want to point out about verse 14. He says, I press toward the goal for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. As in everything else, this upward call of God is in Christ Jesus. I think Paul is contrasting himself here with the legalists who were troubling the church. You see, the legalists might say, I'm following the upward call of God. I don't eat pork. You know, I I observe the Sabbath the way I should. I observe all the rituals that Moses wants me to do. Yes, I'm observing the upward call of God. And Paul would look them in the eye and say, you may be following some sort of call, but it's not in Christ Jesus. That's the difference. It's not in the efforts of our own flesh. We follow this upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now look here at verse 15. Paul says, therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. You see, Paul's saying, if you're mature, you're going to have the same mindset. 
Isn't that a beautiful, and might I say perhaps a frightening way, to measure the maturity of your Christian life? The mature Christian life will have a passion to press forward for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. They'll have the same mind that Paul had. But I love Paul's attitude, as you see it there reflected in verse 15. He says, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. I love Paul's non-contentious attitude in verse 15. He didn't say, and if any of you think otherwise, I'm going to go around and slap you around until you understand the truth. He didn't say that at all. He said, look, if you don't perceive this, if you don't understand it, I trust that God is going to reveal it to you. Paul did not have the attitude that if he failed to convince them, they would never be convinced. No, Paul believed, you know what, I'm going to do my best to persuade you of this, and I hope that I already have. But if I haven't, I believe God can speak to you about it as well. But then verse 16, Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. In other words, to whatever you have attained to this level in your Christian life, it'll show by you walking by these same principles. You see, Paul would not allow a lack of understanding to excuse anybody from doing what they did know to be the Lord's will. What, what you don't know can never excuse you from failing to do what you do know. Do it to whatever degree you have already attained. But as much as anything, look at it there in verse 16. Let us be of the same mind. Now, Do you notice again here? In this letter to the Philippians, Paul once again is giving a call to unity. Right? He's done this before. Look back in chapter 2. Verses 1 and 2. Paul wrote there, Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And now in chapter 3, verse 16, he's repeating the same idea. Let's have this unity and we'll find this unity as we're all pressing on together in maturity in Jesus Christ. If you think about it, isn't that the most beautiful kind of unity there can be among believers? But believers who are unified because they're all pressing forward for what Jesus Christ has for them. Now, what Jesus Christ has for you might be different for what Jesus Christ has for you, might be different in the particular calling than what he has for you, but it doesn't really matter. If we're all pressing forward towards the goal, we're all going to be of the same mind and of the same kind of unity. You know, it's interesting because Paul gave calls to unity to the Philippian church, but can anybody think of another notable church that Paul gave a call to unity to? How about the Corinthians, right? Oh, you're all split. One says, I'm of Paul. One says, I'm of Apollos. One says, well, I'm of Peter. Another says, well, I'm of Jesus. You know, they're, they're divided in all these different factions. It seems to me that the type of disunity was different in Philippi than it was in Corinth. You see, the problem with disunity in Corinth was because of flat-out carnality. The problem in Philippi seems to have been brought on by pressure, 
perhaps especially pressure from the outside. Go back to Philippians chapter 1. Look here starting at verse 27. He says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I am come and see you or an absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. You see, there was this pressure coming upon them, probably persecution in some way. And it was that persecution that was threatening to divide the Philippians. Very different dynamic than what was happening in Corinth. But the exhortation needed to be the same. Be of one mind. Stay together in Jesus Christ. Paul wanted to make sure that this pressure pushed them together in Jesus instead of dividing them apart. So it's amazing, again, how Paul brings this great recounting of his own spiritual passion and he brings it back to a call for the Philippians to have one mind and to enjoy the unity that Jesus Christ has given them. Now, after this extended section, you can say all the way from the beginning of chapter 3, where Paul has sort of laid out and bared his own heart, his own spiritual life, and his own spiritual passion before them, uh, and, and said, this is where my heart's at, this is what I want to do with my life. He brings a very logical next step to it in verse 17, where he says, Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. Now, Don't you think it's very remarkable there that that Paul wrote to the Philippian believers? If you were to say Paul stood before a bunch of people because he wasn't literally standing before them, but he would say the same thing standing before them, right? Paul stands before them and he says, follow my example. Oh, we're very hesitant to say that today, aren't we? We're very hesitant to look at other Christians, or or much less non-believers, and say, you know what, you really should be following my example. Now, nobody should think for a moment that Paul was being egotistical here. He knew that he was not sinless or perfect. Yet he knew that he was a good example. I like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1. You can always remember that passage, right? Because it's 1 Corinthians 11.1. And this is what he says. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. You see, Paul wasn't perfect, but you know what? He was following Jesus Christ. And he said, since I'm following Jesus, you can go ahead and follow me. Because that means you'll be following Jesus too, because I'm doing my best to follow him. And I have to say, we need these kind of concrete examples. It's wrong to put our trust in any man, right? We don't put our trust in any person. Our trust is in Jesus Christ. But isn't it hypocritical for us as Christians to say, well, listen, do as I say, but don't do as I do. That's not right. We should live Christian lives that should be examples. Instead of spending all of our time saying, well, please, please don't look at my life. Look at Jesus. Don't look at my life. No, 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 we should live Christian lives where we can say to other people, you know what, look, I'm not perfect. You and I both know I'm not perfect, but I am going in the right direction. You follow my example and you'll make progress in the Christian life. What a challenge for us, right? What what a challenge to be able to communicate that just on a personal discipleship level. Here, you and I, you follow what I do and you'll progress in the Christian life. Can you say that to another person? 
Paul was able to say it, and I don't think that Paul could say this because he had achieved some height that none of us can achieve. I think we should be able to say that with our life as well. Verse 17, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. In other words, Paul knew very well that there were others who walked the same way, right? Paul wasn't trying to say, I am the only example. Just look at me. Don't look at anybody else. No, Paul says, look around you. There's probably many examples of godliness that you can learn from. Note those who so walk. Paul wasn't so proud to think that he was the only one who could be an example. He told the Philippians to note those who so walk in the way that he spoke of. And he also noted that Paul had, uh, or that the Philippians had, I should say, us as a pattern. Notice that in the plural in verse 17. In other words, Paul wasn't trying to act like he was the only one. But this is where real personal discipleship reflects in our lives. Really, you can be an example for somebody, can't you? For, for somebody, can't you lead them into something deeper than you have? This is how it should be for us in the Christian life. Verse 18. For many walk, as I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, and whose mind is set on earthly things. Whoa, right here in verses 18 and 19. Now we see the need of following the good examples, because there are many people walking out there who are bad examples. Boy, now that's a convicting thing right there, isn't it? The, the, the people who are influencing your Christian life, the, the people who are pouring into, the people who are your examples. Now, maybe you didn't consciously choose them as an example, but nevertheless, that's what they are in your life. They, they have an influence on you. They are an example for you. Those people, are, are they an example to you of godliness or are they an example to you of verses 18 and 19? Those who are not godly. Now, notice this. For many walk, Paul said there in verse 18, of whom I have told you often. Paul warned them about these people and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. You see, Paul realized that there were many who walked in a manner contrary to what Paul taught. And he regarded these people, you have to admit, isn't this an incredibly strong phrase that he uses there in verse 18? Enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, I think Paul is dealing with a different kind of people, a different kind of category than he dealt with at the beginning of chapter 3. Who was he concerned about at the beginning of chapter 3? The legalist, right? The, the one who may be in the best intention, but it was a wrong idea, but maybe they had good intentions. They said, listen, you're really going to be able to follow God better if you keep the Mosaic law. And Paul said, no, no, that's legalism. We need to be far from that. I left all that behind when I gave my life to Jesus Christ. But now in verses 18 and 19, Paul seems to be speaking about a different kind of person because people, if you look at it here in verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things, those don't sound like legalists to me. Does it sound like it to you? Not really. You see here, these are the people who you might say are the opposite of the legalists. They celebrate their supposed liberty in Christ to the indulgence of their flesh. 
Paul had to contend with people like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and in Romans chapter 6 who, who thought that salvation comes without repentance and without conversion. And they probably thought, well, listen, as long as my soul is saved, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. And Paul said, you know what these people are? Again, I just shudder a little bit to look at the strength of this phrase. In verse 18, who would ever want to be called an enemy of the cross of Christ? Now, nobody thinks for a moment that he means they're enemies of the physical representation of the cross, right? Like a vampire or something, right? The vampire movie, they hold up the cross and the vampire shrinks back. Ah, I can't see it. You know, the power of... It's not the physical representation of the cross, Oh, no, no, no. You you may see many enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ wear a very nice gold cross around their neck. That's not the idea at all. No, 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 no. The idea of these enemies of the cross of Christ is that they're enemies of the biblical truth of the atonement that Jesus made for us on the cross and its ongoing power and its ongoing effect in our life. Why did Jesus Christ die for your sins on the cross? Did did he die to cleanse you for your sins just so that you could go out and sin some more? No, no, no. He paid for your sins to put away sin for your life. Do you remember what the promise was to Mary? You shall bear a child, you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Not in their sins, from their sins. You see, the work of the cross of Jesus Christ is not only to save our soul from hell, but to rescue us from the damaging ravages of sin as much as possible, even while we are on this earth. And you could say that they were enemies of the cross of Christ in another way as well. Because what did Jesus say about anybody who would follow him? If anybody wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And what did they want to do with that cross of Christ? that cross that we are to take up and follow him with, they said, put it away. I don't want to have anything to do with that. If following Jesus means taking up a cross, then I am an enemy of the cross of Christ. And Paul said, no, there are many out there who walk in this manner. And if you notice, what did he say? Did you see the strength of it in verse 18? And I tell you now, even weeping, that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. You know, You can just sort of picture it. If you're making a movie of Paul writing this letter, there he is, he's writing, and he's working on it with the words right there. And and now tears are beginning to moisten the parchment that he's writing upon because he's weeping when he writes it. He's weeping when he considers these people who they're believers, or at least as much as anybody can tell they've made a profession of faith. Yet it seems that the power of Jesus Christ has not touched their life for godliness. You see, the work and the, and the destiny of these enemies is that in their disregard for God's holiness, well, it made Paul weep because they gave ammunition to the legalist. What does the legalist say? You know, if you don't keep the law on those people, they're not going to walk godly. And what did these people, these enemies of the cross of Christ said? They fulfilled the legalist threats. And Paul said, no, this is what made him weep. This is what grieved Paul as to their teaching and their manner of life. I love what Spurgeon said. He thought that Paul wept for three reasons over these enemies of the cross of Christ. First of all, he wept on account of the guilt of these enemies of the cross of Christ. He thought how guilty they were. 
How, how they knew something of the greatness of Jesus' work on their behalf, yet there was some way, in some manner, they could just sort of sweep it all aside and would disregard about it all. They could say, well, I'm just going to live my own way anyway. And that made them very guilty before God. Secondly, Paul was grieved because of the ill effects of their conduct, and that made him weep. He looked at all the damage that these enemies of the cross of Christ did. The way that they would say, oh, Jesus, 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 and then live like a devil. But how damaging they are to the cause of Jesus Christ. They're a scandal. They're a blot on the name of Jesus Christ. And then finally, Paul would weep not only because of their guilt, not only because of the damage they would do, but finally he would weep on account of their doom. Did you see what he said about it in verse 19? Whose end is destruction. No, that's the word translated in other places, perdition. Where Judas is called the son of perdition. This refers either to their ultimate damnation or perhaps to the present destruction of their lives. But it's a heavy word to put upon anybody who might be at least on a visible level part of the church of Jesus Christ. Think about it. You know, I never read in the Bible that Paul wept when they whipped his back in persecution. I never read that Paul wept because he got shipwrecked. I never heard that Paul wept when the, the, in, before the Sanhedrin, they hit him on the cheek in the Sanhedrin house and the high priest had commanded. I never hear that Paul wept at any of the kind of physical sufferings that, that he endured, but he wept because he had a heart for these people who were enemies of the cross of Christ. Charles Spurgeon said, Professors of religion who get into the church and yet lead ungodly lives are the worst enemies that the cross of Christ has. These are the sort of men who bring tears into the minister's eyes. These are those who break their heart. They are the enemies of the cross of Christ. And no wonder you saw the description of them in verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame who set their mind on earthly things. Now you know you say, man, I look at my life and, and I see areas of the flesh in my own life. Am, am I one of these enemies of the cross of Christ? A, am I one of those whose end is destruction, whose God is my belly? Don't think for a minute it just has to do with food that they eat, although I'm sure that was part of it. The idea there is that they lived for indulgence. The indulgence of their senses. That's what they lived for. They lived for the pleasures of the body, the mind, and the soul. And yet they gloried in their shame. And you say, well, is this me? I'll tell you, one way to measure whether or not it's you. Take a look there at the end part of the verse. Who set their mind on earthly things. That's where they set their mind. That's what they live for, the things of this earth. And so it's fair to you to ask. You say, Lord, search me tonight. To, to what extent is my mind set on earthly things? Now listen, we live on this earth. We, we, we can't ignore certain practicalities of life, but you don't have to set your mind on them, right? You can set your mind on someplace different entirely. And that's suggested to us right here in verse 20. Do you see the contrast? For our citizenship is in heaven. 
from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is the contrast for us. Those who live their life dominated by the flesh, these enemies of the cross of Christ, look, their, their life is dominated. They've set themselves on earthly things. In contrast, Paul says, us, our citizenship, it is in heaven. Now again, Paul is using a figure of speech, a, a phrasing that would be very meaningful and very powerful for the Philippian people because Philippi was an interesting city. Philippi was a long way from Rome, right? It was on a different, well, it wasn't on a different continent. It was on the European continent. It would be in today what we'd call modern-day Greece, but not on that, that, you know, great isthmus or peninsula that makes up Italy and Rome. You know, it was a long way from Rome. Nevertheless, Philippi had a special status in the Roman Empire. It was what was known as a Roman colony city. Therefore, if you were a citizen of Philippi, You were a citizen of Rome. You know, just like Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, we might say. Paul was a citizen of Rome, though he had never lived in Rome. So you could be a citizen of Rome and yet live in Philippi. That meant that you were under Roman laws even though you lived in Philippi. Your life was dominated by Roman customs even though you lived in Philippi. Well, in the same way, Christians should consider themselves citizens of heaven. Here's the idea. If we're citizens of heaven, it means that we're resident aliens on earth. We're different. Now, you know what? Maybe you've had some personal experience with this. I trust that you've had. I think I'm speaking to a bunch that's fairly well-traveled. You know what it's like to go to a foreign place and to stick out, don't you, right? Everybody knows, well, they're not from around here, are they? They've come from someplace else. They're visiting here. They're a foreigner here. Their background, their culture, probably their language, all of it, it comes from another place. And they may be here physically, but I can tell they're visiting here, right? They're not from here. That is exactly the impression that we should be making upon people as citizens of heaven. We're to walk around this earth and give forth the attitude, give forth the, the image to other people. You know, we don't quite belong here. We're actually from someplace else. Our roots are someplace else. And we should be so marked by our heavenly citizenship that that we should be noticed as different. You know, when when you're the the foreigner, you're noticed as being different, aren't you? I noticed this here, being in Germany, of course, when we take uh, American visitors over to the shopping mall. Take American visitors over to the shopping mall and what you immediately notice when you walk around is you just want to say to the American visitors, not all of them, but an awfully good proportion of them, you just want to say to them, would you please stop shouting in the shopping mall? Because the American volume level of conversation just tends to be louder in a public place than in many other places in the world. But anybody who could look at them, you you can look at that person, that American, as they walk through the German shopping mall, any German in that shopping mall could look at them and say, they're not from here. And say, well, wait a minute, I'm wearing a shirt that I bought here. You know, I'm wearing pants that I bought here. No, it, it has everything. It's just your general appearance, your posture, the way you carry yourself, the, the way you're, it, it's just evident. It's written all over you. You're, you're not quite from here. Now, If that person is a good person in the land that they're visiting, they should seek to do good works in the land they sojourn in, right? 
It would do no good for an American living in Germany to say, well, I don't care about Germany. I'm an American. No, no, you should seek to do good in the land that you dwell in. So we should. We're citizens of heaven, but we're here on this earth. So we should seek to do good on this earth, shouldn't we? No, our allegiance is not to the earth, but we want to do good things here. Secondly, we should not seek to interfere in the affairs of the land that we sojourn in, right? Listen, there are earthly affairs here that are just not our business as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Third, aliens have privileges as well as duties. We're not under the same obligations as citizens of the land that we sojourn in. We're not under the same obligations of the citizens of this earth. Fourth, aliens are not eligible for the same rewards and recognitions as the citizens of the land that they sojourn in. In other words, there's certain rewards and certain honors that this world has to give that do not interest us as citizens of heaven. We consider ourselves ineligible for them because we don't live for exhortation on this earth. And fifth, you could say that aliens should not focus on building riches in the land that they sojourn in. They should be building riches in the land of their true citizenship. But we have a certain character here as citizens of heaven. You see, as citizens, we're under the government of heaven. Oh, we respect the government of this earth where we sojourn, right? Oh, but we answer to a higher government. We answer to the government of heaven. As citizens, we share in heaven's honors. As citizens, we have property rights in heaven. As citizens, we enjoy the pleasures of heaven. As citizens of heaven, we love heaven and we feel attached there. As citizens of heaven, we keep in communication with our native home, don't we? We send letters back home all the time, right? We're calling, we're messaging all the time back home because we have a citizenship in heaven. I think... There needs to be in the world today, among believers, a a real rise in patriotism for heaven, right? A a real love for our true citizenship. Oh, I love heaven. I love the place where I'm truly a citizen. I love that. I love the idea that I am a citizen of heaven. Now, from this place, we also eagerly wait for the Savior. You you think of the Philippians there in their city of Philippi and how eagerly they would await a visit from the emperor of Rome, right? They would be so excited if the emperor of Rome would come and visit their city. Well, so we await for our great king to come back to this earth. And that king is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, verse 21, the work that Jesus will do, where it says, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the workings by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. You see, what our Savior can do, no earthly king, no earthly ruler can do, our Savior can transform our lowly body and make it conformed to his glorious body. Isn't that beautiful to think that Jesus rose in a resurrection body that was absolutely remarkable. It it seemed to be a body that that could enjoy um, uh, communication between heaven and earth, right? When Jesus ascended from this earth up into heaven, he went up in his resurrection body. His resurrection body was fit to just go right up into heaven. God's going to give you that kind of body. Jesus' resurrection body was still identifiable as Jesus, right? People would look at him and they would recognize it as Jesus. Maybe they would not immediately recognize him, but they knew this is Jesus, 
Very interesting. Our resurrection bodies will be recognizable. Jesus' resurrection body seemed to have certain characteristics, certain powers, where he could appear in the midst of a room when the doors were shut and the windows were closed, and he could just appear in the midst of the room. Our resurrection body will have the same abilities. We will have the same kind of resurrection body that Jesus Christ had when he rose from the dead on the third day. And this reminds us, Jesus was not merely resuscitated from the dead in the same body. He received a resurrection body, patterned after the old, yet fully equipped and fitted for heaven. How can God do this? Look at it again in verse 21. Who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working of by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. You see, this is possible because the God we serve is omnipotent. He can subdue all things to himself. Even something as amazing as the resurrection of our bodies after the pattern of Jesus' resurrection body. Well, we're going to leave it here with these final words here in verse 21. But I want to give you one last thought as we leave the text here for this evening. That thought that he says at the end of verse 20 thing, 21, that he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is able to subdue all things even unto himself? You might say, well, yes, I believe it. I read it right here in the Bible. But, you know, I wonder if you think that there are certain areas in your life that are unconquerable. Certain fleshly habits. Certain patterns of vain and and harmful thinking that you find yourself getting off into. Certain sins of cherishing a bitterness or a a wound from the past or or an impure thought or this or that or the other thing. And you've just pretty much believed, well, that's unconquerable. Then if that's how you believe, I don't know that you can say you believe, verse 21, that he is able even to subdue all things himself. Let me read you a quote from the great devotional writer and commentator F.B. Meyer. He says, there may be sins within your heart that have long resisted control. Do with them as they will, they still defy you. But if you will hand over the conflict to Jesus, he will subdue them. He will bring them under his strong, subjecting hand. Be of good cheer. What you cannot do, he can. He is able to subdue all things to himself. Let's believe that. Not just in the big picture of an omnipotent God ruling over the world. Not just in the larger picture for our own lives of his ability to transform these lowly bodies into a glorious resurrection body but in his ability to work in our life right now. There is no sin unconquerable in our lives. He is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Father, our prayer tonight is that, first of all, you would breathe inside of us by your spirit this same great passion that Paul had, Lord, to press on for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
Oh, Lord, keep us pressing on. Keep us trusting in the power of Jesus Christ to subdue all things even unto himself. Oh, you're a great God. And we see you work in the lives of really men who are just like us, Lord. Paul the Apostle was not a superman. He was not so different from us, Lord. He was just a man yielded to the work of your spirit. So, Lord, help us to yield to the work of your spirit in us. And, Father, through the midst of it all, Help us to avoid like a plague any spirit of spiritual superiority. No, Lord, that's going back. That's not going forward. That's a regressing. It's not climbing up in the Christian life. Help us to press on, never believing that we have fully attained, but to continue to press on for that high call of God in Christ Jesus. We love you, Lord God, and praise you for your faithfulness to us here this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.